0: Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today, a deep dive into the violence engulfing our nation. Just as we were preparing to go to air, we got word that three SWAT officers have been shot in Philadelphia while serving a murder warrant. The suspect is dead Fortunately, the officers are expected to survive. But in too many of these cases, it goes the other way. This is just one of many stories that we've seen in America's big cities as of late. And all of this mayhem is increasingly becoming a hot button issue on the campaign trail as we approach the midterms. Republicans label Democrats soft on crime. Democrats now trying to fight back, saying in reality, there's a red state murder problem. We're going to take a Hard look at that one. We have one of the best minds on this topic in America joining us today. Rafael Mangual is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of Criminal Injustice What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael, welcome back to the show. Great to have you.
1: So great to be back. Thanks, Megan.
0: So, this is the thing out of Philadelphia is horrifying. But I can't say it's entirely surprising that is one of the many cities just plagued with crime and increasing murder rates and a D.A. at the top who doesn't seem all that interested in prosecuting crime. Let's just start there in Philadelphia and what Philadelphia tells us, if anything, about the rest of the nation.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, if you look at Philadelphia, it really is kind of leading the nation in a lot of ways. Every single year since their DA, Larry Krasner, who campaigned and, and you know has governed on a platform of decarceration for its own sake, every single year since he's been in office, he's presided over significant homicide increases. And in 2021, Philadelphia set an all-time record, aka meaning that it's the worst it's ever been in that city for homicides and it is on track uh to keep pace with that record again this year so yeah violence is a a probably the the most massive it's ever been in that city as it is in a lot of other american cities um but, but philadelphia in a lot of ways is really ground zero now you know with respect to this police shooting i mean it's incredibly tragic but you know it's also something that's not Um, unaligned with the broader trends. We have seen an increase, um, not just in crime more broadly, but also in violence directed at police officers. We have seen uh, the policing profession become more dangerous in in a multitude of ways, but especially with respect to physical danger. Um, And that's also problematic as cities like Philadelphia and other major cities around the world, uh, and and country especially, um, struggle to find officers to fill vacant slots. Now, what's really interesting about this, or perhaps really tragic about this, is that you know I I talk a lot about the phenomenon of crime concentration, right? I mean, crime is not a problem that's evenly distributed around the United States. It's not a problem that's evenly distributed around American cities, including Philadelphia. It's very hyper-concentrated. And I, I harp on that point because I think people all too often forget about what it's like for the people who are unfortunately living in the pockets of concentrated crime. Uh, in American cities. But one of the other sort of populations dealing with that disproportionately are police officers who are tasked with going into those pockets of concentrated crime and patrolling on a daily basis. And so um, in addition to the residents of those high crime communities, police officers are also you know, bearing the brunt of the downside risk associated with the kind of decarceration project that people like Larry Krasner have engaged in um, since they took office
0: hmm. And, and the, you know, the rhetoric about police was so disgusting over the past couple of years. And now the Democrats have realized that the defund the police policies don't work. And in city after city, they're quietly restoring the funding. But I haven't seen a an apology for the rhetoric. I haven't seen them going out there and celebrating our police officers as the brave heroes. Ninety eight percent of them are. I mean, I would say there's a two percent bad apple rate like there is in any profession that give the rest a bad name. But I haven't seen that. I mean, these guys need to be built back up and we need to show them our appreciation and affection uh, given the risks that we ask them to take. And to the contrary, these Democrats won't budge off of their old rhetoric because I think they they understand if you're a member of the squad, that's just going to cost you with your core base.
1: I think that's exactly right. I mean, and and also for the past decade plus, you know, opposition to the police, opposition to the criminal justice system more broadly, has been made a central part of the Democratic Party's brand. I mean, I really don't think there's any way around that reality. Now, I, I would welcome uh, any effort on the part of Democrats to walk that back. I, I think it's important for police officers in in major cities to feel appreciated to feel like they are going to get a fair shake in the unfortunate event that they're involved in the controversial use of force. What we're seeing in the survey data is that police officers don't feel that way. Um, they consistently report believing that they're not going to be treated fairly. And that fear we know, you know, is associated with things like the Ferguson effect and the Minneapolis effect where police officers disengage and they they aren't as proactive as they otherwise would be. Um, and and that's not out of antipathy for the communities that they're serving. It's it's out of you know a genuine fear and out of a desire to to preserve them, themselves and their careers, um, and and the life that they've built for their families. And 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 I don't think people fully appreciate just what it is that we ask police officers to take on. And and not just in terms of the tasks that we ask ask them to do, but also. Just the, the mental uh, uh, burden that we ask them to bear as a result of the things that they see. I mean, you, know, you, I, lots of people listening right now, I mean, we are very fortunate in so far as we get to go about our days and are, are kind of live in a way that's insulated from you know, the really terrible things that happened, uh, that happened in this world. Police officers, on the other hand, are dealing with people often on their very worst days and their very worst moments, seeing the very worst of humanity. I mean, they see dead bodies, they see, you know, respond to deadly car crashes, and you know, uh, just just terrible problems of you know, familial abuse and drug addiction, and it's incredibly depressing. It's incredibly psychologically taxing, which is one of the reasons yes. why in addition. Um you know to to the the problem with respect to to police uh, being subjected to to violence um, at the hands of criminals, we also see police struggling with mental health and committing suicide at a significantly higher rate than other professions. And you know mm-hmm. it, it's just something that hasn't made its way into the rhetoric and really should.
0: But this is one of the reasons why the narrative about police bothers me so much. I have a brother who's a police officer. He's now just retired, but he became a lieutenant. So he rose all the way up through the ranks in inner city, Albany, where I'm from, and he was attacked at one point by a gang of thugs who came after him and really hurt him. He was in the hospital for a long time. And what did he do when he got better? He went right back out. this is when he was a beat you know on foot patrolman, went right back out and kept protecting them and went into house after house, this is a predominantly black neighborhood, house after house, protecting women who are getting beaten and kids who are getting hurt, and you know, black members of the community who are victims of black on black crime, which is what it tended to be there, and never once said, a racist thing. I mean, I this is my brother. I know him well. He, he never once said a racist thing, had a racist thought, just kept going back together to protect folks, was never accused of anything like that, had a stellar career. And then because of some cop in Minneapolis, he's got the nation pointing at him saying, You're racist. You're a terrible person. You're a yeah. racist, and you and your fellow cops don't deserve funding for what you do. He's just one example of cops who are like, what? You know what? Like, this yeah. is the thanks that we get. And he continued doing his job, as did his brethren uh, out there serving the community. But so many have said, forget this. Forget it. Why? Yeah. Why would I do this?
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing I, I don't think people quite fully appreciate. And it's a, it's a real incongruity in the less critique. Right. I mean, the idea that policing is an institution built on and built for the oppression of low-income minority communities um, is just in Congress with the reality of policing, which is that police officers are being disproportionately deployed to areas with the largest crime problems, which tend to have disproportionately Black and Latino populations. Um, as a result, when they do their job, the public safety benefits associated with that job and you're primarily to those very communities and i I like to ask people the rhetorical question why on earth would an institution allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of this particular community so disproportionately benefit that community when the institution achieves its stated ends as stated by the people at the institution's helm i mean ask any police chief in the country what it is it what is it that you want to do how do you define success and they say i want to keep crime under control i want to get crime down that's how i define my success well who benefits if crime goes down right in in the united states of america the homicide victimization rate for black men is 10x that of white men right in my home city of new york 95 percent of all shooting victims every single year at least that's a minimum are either black or hispanic almost all of them are male Right, So when you look at things like the crime decline which over the course of the 1990s, what you find is that it disproportionately, in fact, almost exclusively benefited um, low-income minority communities. It it added, between 1990 and 2014, the decline in homicides added a full year of life expectancy to the average black man's life. It only added 0.14 years of life expectancy to the average white man's life. Now, the public health equivalent of that, according to a study done by a very liberal criminologist named Patrick Sharkey, is the elimination of obesity altogether now why on earth would these institutions be okay with providing those kinds of benefits to those communities if it were true that they harbored nothing but racial animus for those communities it's just Mm -hmm. it's a it's a glaring incongruity that no one seems keen to explain um but it, it tells us why policing is such a noble profession I mean, these are people who are going into communities that are incredibly disadvantaged and literally risking their lives on a daily basis to make life more livable. Um, and, and that is something that should be applauded. And instead, it's dead Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, I in college, I had a boyfriend whose dad was a New York City cop. Uh, he worked in White Plains, and uh, he was talking to, you know, once you know one cop, you know, a lot of cops because they hang out together yeah. and his his brothers down in the Bronx um, in blue, they're drawing their guns every day, every day. This is in the nineties in, in New York and the Bronx. Some, some cops never have to draw their gun. Never once. Mm-hmm. These guys are in such a dangerous area back then. It was, can you imagine in a, in a profession mm-hmm. where you have to draw your gun every day, which means yeah. you're in great danger too. Um, and all we do in, in today's day and age is crap all over them and tell them they're awful. I mean, to me, it's a congruence of, The media, which in particular, in particular, in an election year, like we saw with George Floyd, uh, takes a, a tape like that and puts it on loop and works to elect Democrats with it. And an underlying problem with the cops, which is short of. Of unjustified shootings, they have been too rough, in particular with black suspects. And that that pops up in the research, too, even people like Roland Fryer, who are, you know, he yeah. did the seminal study showing that there is not a disproportionate rate of cops killing unarmed black men short of killing is brutality. And so the, so the experience of many black men in America of having been roughed up by cops or pulled over too many times by cops, you know, Tim Scott was talking about, I think it was like 17 times or some ridiculous number he's been pulled over just in the past 20 years. Me one time. One. Right. Um, so that experience that sort of forgive the term because I hate it, but lived experience of black men feeling extra suspect when dealing with cops layered into an agenda driven media um, and Democrats agenda driven you know, party that represents half the United States merging to produce this false narrative of cops, as LeBron James said, like on the hunt to kill black men.
1: Right, right, and you know and and even with respect to the disproportionality that we see in non uh deadly uses of force, uh, such as what was found in in Roland's study, which you know it's important to remember that use of force generally is still a very rare occurrence, right, so we're seeing disproportionality in what is still a very statistically rare outcome of a police citizen interaction, right if you look at um studies of arrests or police contacts. Police use force at about one percent of all arrests that they affect. So it, it it is incredibly um reflective of their restraint as a broader profession. And that often gets lost in the media's sort of hyper focus on any evidence that sort of backs up this narrative that we know has huge political implications, which is that you know, the police are part of this sort of broader racist system um, you know, that, that uh, produces inequities uh, that, that need to be addressed. I mean, you know, there was a study done, and I talk about it in the book, um, uh, that looked at a million calls for service across three police departments in three different states, in um, uh, Arizona, Louisiana, and North Carolina over a two-year period. That led to 114,000 criminal arrests. And that entire data set, a million calls for service, 114,000 arrests. There's just one fatal police shooting captured. It was of an armed suspect. And police use force in less than 1% of all of the arrests that they affected. And in 98% of the cases in which they did use force, there was either no injury or mild injury um, to the suspect. And so that context gets lost in our national conversation. And what that leads to is the sorts of really radical policy interventions that we saw rush through yeah. the legislative process since 2020. I mean, more than 30 states passed in excess of 140 police reform bills just in the year after George Floyd's death in this country. Can you country. say that again? That more
0: than 30? Say that again.
1: More than 30 states passed over 140 police reform bills in the year after George Floyd's death. That is an enormous amount of of policy movement in a very short period of time. Probably um, policies enacted with very little thought given to the potential downside risks associated with that. And now I think we're starting to have to grapple with the reality that maybe it wasn't such a good idea to systematically lower the transaction costs of committing a crime and to systematically raise the transaction costs of enforcing the law. Um, and And, you know, I, I did an event at, at, at uh, UC Berkeley yesterday uh, to talk about my book, and, and someone asked the question of, you know, why is it that despite crime going up in so many American cities, you know, we haven't seen the kind of backlash that you might expect? And I think the, the answer to that is a function of where crime concentrates. It, you know, the vast majority of Americans live in places that are as safe as the safest places in the world. There are just so many degrees of removal between the typical American and the sort of violence that is currently plaguing the north side of Philadelphia or the west side of Chicago. Um, And so those degrees of removal create a sense of sort of foreignness to that kind of problem. And the lack of understanding, the lack of experience with actual high levels of criminal violence, um, I think sort of artificially increases a tolerance for a policy agenda that probably shouldn't be tolerated to the degree that it is.
0: You know, the cover of the New York post today has, uh, it highlights the immigration issue coming to New York, you know, thanks to all these buses that are bringing illegal immigrants here to Manhattan and showing how the, the New York City public schools are getting overwhelmed, overwhelmed with children who speak no English who are showing up for school. There's one district has one Spanish speaking teacher. You know, you've got 100 plus kids who are new sitting there ready to, you know, it's like, what are they going to do? And this is a function of the border state governors trying to show some of these sanctuary cities and sanctuary states what their policies are wreaking. Down south. And you think about what you just said about the cities versus the burbs and whether there should be a similar busing program for, you know, inner city gangs or inner city criminals out to the burbs. So these, you know, they tend to be white liberal women who push these policies on the inner cities, taking away their police funding, getting rid of cash bail and all that. Um, would have to actually deal with the consequences, you know, the repeat offenders who never should have been let out who now have no bail. Um, how, how do you want him? How, how much do you want him living next to you, hanging out right. at your kid's school? Because that's what has to happen for the residents of Manhattan and Philadelphia and Chicago, um, who are the victims of these policies, but may not have the time to go protest on the Upper West Side like these other women do all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suspect that has a little something to do with New York's turnaround in the 90s. I mean, you know, for the most part, you know, uh, crime tends to remain very, very sort of concentrated in a lot of American cities. But New York is somewhat unique in that our subway system is very integrated or, or, you know, um, and and so a lot of really highly valued public spaces in the early 90s and late 80s started to suffer. I mean, if you were a stockbroker living on the Upper East Side, but working on Wall Street... It was more convenient to take the six train to work um, than it was, you know, to get in in a car service and, and, you know, be stuck on on the FDR in traffic. Uh, But you couldn't take the subways back then, not without taking your life in your hands, essentially, right? They were covered in graffiti. They were gross. They, you know, were very dangerous, lots of robberies, sexual assault, etc. So that was, you know, a major public space that was really valued by, you know, sort of politically active people that they couldn't access because the crime had gotten so bad. You know, if you enjoyed the theater, you know, the area in and around Times Square was incredibly hostile, um, you know, to tourists and, and, and people who were just trying to, you know, enjoy that that part of the city. Um, and so, you know, you couldn't really go to a show without being accosted by, you know, um, uh, prostitutes and drug dealers and pimps and, um, you know, there was like, porn shops all over the place. And it was, again, it was really gross. If you, you know, had a million dollar mansion on Central Park West, you wanted to be able to go jog in the park in the morning, but you couldn't do that without risking getting robbed or worse. Uh, and, And so as those highly valued public spaces deteriorated more and more, I think that is what drove uh, the sort of rethinking that led to the revolution um, that allowed New York to kind of win the war on crime for as long as it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but But that's not going to happen in a lot of other cities where the crime is just you know, going to remain concentrated in the places where it's always been concentrated. And, you know, it's starting to change in some places like Chicago, where, you know, parts of the Loop and uh, you know, the Gold Coast and River North are starting to see shootings, you know, at rates that they never saw before. And, and and maybe that'll start to change things there. But in lots of other parts of the country, um, that's just not going to happen. And so, you know, one of the reasons I do the work that I do is to try and sort of bring these stories to people so that they understand. Um, Or at least, you know, come closer to understanding what life is like living in a place where that is a sort of everyday occurrence. I mean, you know, you and I remember the, the, the D.C. sniper situation. I mean, people living in and around, you know, Virginia and Washington, D.C. back then were losing their minds around this time i mean they were you know pumping gas while dunking ducking behind their car they would drive past the e on their gas tank at night so as not to you know have to have to get out and be targeted they would zigzag through empty parking lots if they left work late i mean these are very rational people living in america's most elite zip codes taking all of these drastic steps to minimize their risk of being victimized which by the way was on par with being struck by lightning and yet the psychological impact was so profound for them but they don't seem to be able to internalize what life is like in a neighborhood where someone gets shot every week, where gunshots are heard on a near daily basis um, and and where your chances you know of being victimized by gun violence are actually higher than of you graduating from college on time, right? I mean so uh, that is something that I think needs to change, and it's one of the things that you know really kind of motivates me to 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 bring attention to these issues.
0: We talked about uh, Philadelphia here and there in the, in the first 20 minutes, and Larry Krasner is their soft on crime DA, George Soros-backed. He was interviewed by the local Fox um, reporters. I think Mike Jerick is one of the guys in this clip, or old, my old pal from Fox News Channel, and um, got very defensive and then kind of went on offense in a fascinating clip. Here it is. Watch this. Sot 10.
2: You're a reform district attorney. Everybody, everybody in the country knows that, but maybe it's not working. It is working. The reality is there are thousand people killed in twenty months. The it is working. The reality is when you look at all these different jurisdictions, we've had a devastating blow from the pandemic and there is absolutely no correlation between being progressive or traditional and the rate of crime. These states in the United States that have a rate of homicide that is 40% higher are MAGA states, they are Trump states. I'll say it again, the rate of homicide in Trump states, as compared to Biden states, take all fifty of them is forty percent higher. You know, higher. Republicans say the opposite. It's all the blue. Republicans that have lie. It. I mean, let's just get down to it. Republicans lie. That is what they do. Eight of not the ten cities with not. Well, okay, that's right. Not all of them do, but the MAGA ones do. Eight out of ten of the most violent cities are Trump cities. Like we got to get real about this. Facts matter.
0: Eight out of ten of the most violent cities. Are Trump cities? Is that true or uh, isn't it?
1: I'm going to have to request a citation on that because, uh, <laughs> to my knowledge, that is completely false. Uh, and this whole red state murder problem meme is really wait. Just
0: let me I, pause you on that because I know I know you've got points on that, but can I just say, as a fact check, um, a compilation of June police data uh, from cities with populations greater than two hundred thousand uh, shows that so far in twenty 20- Twenty two. The cities with the highest murder rates are in, you know, from top to descending order, New Orleans, Baltimore, Birmingham, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Rochester, Philadelphia, Atlanta and Kansas City. What do all those cities have in common? Democrat mayors. He's just wrong. It's just not true. true. So that second point he just said, I'll, I'll do him the courtesy of not saying it was a lie, but he doesn't have his facts straight at all. The top 10 cities when it comes to violent crime are Democrat controlled cities, not MAGA Trump cities. I mean, give me a break. Really? Uh, Okay, (laughs) Philadelphia. Is that a Trump MAGA city? Because last I looked, it looked pretty blue to me. Baltimore, New Orleans. All right. Do your homework, sir. Now let's go to the larger point of states, because there are red states that are in the top 10 when it comes to states with the biggest crime problems. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, it's just kind of a silly point to make. I mean, first off, you know, state murder rates are an aggregation of crime across a geographic area that can't possibly be occupied at the same time, right? So it doesn't really tell us anything about how safe or, um, you know, at risk we are at any given point in time in any given place within that state. So, you know, to me, those those rates are, are usually pretty useless. But if you look at, red states and their murder rates, what you'll find is that their murder rates are almost entirely a function or largely a function of their biggest cities, which are often very blue and often very dangerous, right? So there are a couple of examples that I give in a New York Post piece on this today. If you look at, you know, Mississippi um, or Louisiana, in Louisiana, New Orleans, Shreveport and Baton Rouge, um, which are all blue cities, Uh, If you took those out of the analysis, Louisiana's state murder rate goes down by nearly 30 percent. In Mississippi, if you just took Jackson, Mississippi out, which is another blue state with a progressive prosecutor, uh, I might add, the state's murder rate goes down by nearly 20 percent, 18.7 percent. So, you know, the idea that this sort of red state murder problem is evidence that, the you know, uh, conservative uh, and, and MAGA types, as they uh, put it are are just wrong on crime is is a little silly because there's really no they're not making an, an actual connection between policy and and outcomes. I mean the better question to ask is, are we better off for policy decisions that make it more likely that repeat offenders will spend more time on the street? Are we better but, off? Oh uh, wait, because policies- I do want
0: to talk to you about the policies that are driving this. But can I can I just stop on Larry Krasner for a second? The DA. Number one, generally, is supposed to be anti-criminal and want to lower the crime rate and be pro-fact. That's why we say of our prosecutors, you have an obligation to the truth and to justice. And if you pursue a crime and you figure out that the guy didn't do it or you don't have a good faith belief that you can convict this guy beyond a reasonable doubt, you're supposed to drop the charges on your own without making it go to trial. You have a different obligation than, than the defense attorney. Um, this guy is a partisan hack. That's what that soundbite tells me. What he so what Rafael's basically told us is that the only reason he can say that red states Trump Trump supporting red states have a higher murder rate than some blue states is because their largest blue Democrat run cities are jacking up the average. In these red states. The reason they have a problematic murder rate and homicide and violent crime rate is because of the Democrat run large cities within the red states. Knowing that, can we just listen to that soundbite again and listen to the dishonesty of this man who's the prosecutor for one of the cities most plagued by homicide and violent crimes in the United States? Here he is again, Larry Krasner.
2: Reformed district attorney, everybody, everybody in the country knows that, but maybe it's not working. It is working. The reality is there this aren't is a thousand people killed in 20 months. The It is working. The reality is when you look at all these different jurisdictions, we've had a devastating blow from the pandemic, and there is absolutely no correlation between being progressive or traditional and the rate of crime. These states in the United States that have a rate of homicide that is 40% higher are MAGA states. They are Trump states. I'll say it again. The rate of homicide... In Trump states, as compared to Biden states, take all 50 of them, is 40% You know, higher. Republicans say the opposite. It's all the blue Republicans lie. It. I mean, let's just get down to it. Republicans lie. That is what they do. Eight of not the 10 cities without, lie. not, well, okay, that's right. Not all of them do, but the MAGA ones do. Eight out of 10 of the most violent cities are Trump cities. Like, we got to get real about this. Facts
0: matter. This is crazy. Those poor Philadelphians, Raphael, I mean, their murder rate is through the roof. And this is the guy that they're depending on to correct that. And all he seems to want to do is mislead uh, and just deny the facts, never mind address them.
1: Yeah. I mean, the audacity is really just jaw dropping. The idea that he would sit there on TV and say that what he's doing is working in the face of all time highs for homicide, right? This is if philadelphia cannot say like other cities can that it was worse in the 1990s no it is as bad as it has ever been and that has happened under larry krasner's watch what is it that's working i mean i suppose he can say it's working insofar as he you know campaigned on on releasing a lot more criminals and not uh, prosecuting a lot more criminals and, and and not incarcerating a lot more criminals so You know, I I guess in some sense uh, it's working, but it's not working for the people of the north side um, that are dealing with violence levels that have never been seen before in that city. I mean, it it really is. And these people
0: are not going to go pull the stats and do their homework to figure out whether he's lying to them or not. There's, there still tends to be a level of trust in our public officials. We used to really respect prosecutors who put bad guys away. Um, Not this one. This guy is an obfuscator, and, and the the nerve to be accusing the Republicans of being liars as he lies through his teeth on television. That one was particularly galling. Now, you you have taken a look at how what got us here. I mean, that's the question, right? Is it is it because the Democrats all say pandemic pandemic drove people crazy, drove people into the streets. We're still recovering from that. Um, That may be a factor in the rising crime rate we've seen over the past few years, but it certainly doesn't tell the whole story. So what does
1: yeah, well, it's certain, the pandemic. I mean, not telling the whole story, I think, is a little bit of an understatement. I mean, the pandemic yeah. affected the entire world. The entire world did not see violent crime rise the way that the U.S. saw, right? The, the The pandemic affected the entire country. As far as I can tell, violent crime remained as geographically and demographically concentrated as it was before the pandemic uh, in the post pandemic years. So, you know, if, if in fact exposure to the pandemic caused people to commit violent crime that otherwise wouldn't commit violent crime we would have ex- we would have expected to see violent crime become a, a a sort of more widespread problem as opposed to just a bigger problem in the pockets of concentrated crime where it was already um, a, a problem and so you know that that is just i think something that really has to get said um, at the outset but you know one of the things that I think we have to open our minds to is the possibility that the broad trend toward decarceration and depolicing has something to do with what we're experiencing right now. And what we're experiencing right now isn't just a function of the post-2020 world. People forget that in 2015 and 2016, the U.S. saw pretty significant increases in the homicide rate across the country. Lots of cities started dealing with Um, Much higher rates of of crime. Chicago saw something like a 58% increase in homicides in 2016. In 2019, Baltimore set its homicide rate record. So this isn't just a, a pandemic era phenomenon. Now, what might it have to do with? I think um, it might have something to do with the fact that over uh the last you know 15 years, our incarcerated or our imprisonment population um has gone down by about 20%. Um, you know, the pandemic probably contributed to that to some degree, insofar as when the court shut down, we saw a lot fewer people going to jail in the short term and more people being released earlier from prisons, and that probably had an impact on public safety. But just as a matter of policy, we have made it less likely that committing a crime will result in incarceration. We have seen the advent of the progressive prosecutor movement to the extent that now nearly 50 million Americans are living in progressive prosecutor jurisdictions. Um, That would have been unheard of 10 years ago. We've seen sentencing reforms, bail reforms, juvenile justice reforms, discovery reforms, all of these things have been aimed in one direction, and that is, like I said before, to lower the costs of committing crime, as well as to raise the costs of enforcing the law. And those things have come in the form of new restrictions on prosecutors, um, um, you know, new restrictions on police. And we've also seen depolicing as a result of fear on the part of police of being proactive and 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 being treated unfairly and tried and convicted in the court of public opinion for things that that were actually completely lawfully done i mean i'm thinking here like the george floyd yeah i mean just think about the mckay bryant case right i mean here is an officer saving the life of of one girl who was about to have a large knife plunged into her abdomen and he was you know plastered all over social media as a racist killer
0: Mm-hmm. that this is the one where yeah. MSNBC was saying, oh it was, it was playful, you know this is playful this is what you <laughs> right. do when you're when you're growing up and Gad sad has mm-hmm. his, his amazing his amazing video I'll never forget going it was just a, just a tickling of the aorta right. you know like we all used right. to do when we were
1: growing up it was I mean,
0: absurd
1: it really truly is I mean we are living in bizarre world in many ways, and so yeah I mean I, I think all of that in the aggregate is Probably uh, explains a big chunk of where we're going and what we're seeing on the streets. Okay. I mean, you know, it, it, there's just no real getting around that. I mean, we know just from, from past analyses, incarceration works, policing works we just haven't invented some other way to produce the same kind of public safety. Well, we you know, Yeah,
0: you just know you have these bleeding hearts who are like, well, incarceration, we need to decarcerate because it disproportionately affects black men. It's like, well, the stats show that that is who's committing the majority of violent crime. These two things are related, um, but you're supposed to just feel bad. And in the name right. of racial justice, open the prison doors. That's a good place to pause it because there's much more to discuss, including what's going on in New York City and these videos that have come out, which I show you right after this break as Raphael stays with us. So decarceration has been the big, big push. No, we've got to let people out of the jails because we have a racist criminal justice system. I mean, BLM basically says open the jails, open the jails, let them all out. That was on their policy uh, prescription on their website for a long time, may still be, which is absurd, of course. You know, you know how many people who uh, black and brown people in particular who are going to get killed if we do that. <laughs> OK, so that's not going to happen. But decarceration and a racist criminal justice system leading to overcrowding of black and brown people in the jails has been something I've heard from people I respect who are not crazed race essentialists like BLM, too. So what do you say to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I said we have to understand that. Just looking at top line disparities doesn't really tell us much about what's going on, right? The overrepresentation of black and brown men in u s. prisons is primarily a function of an overrepresentation of black and brown men involved in serious crime. And it is serious crime that lands people in prison. We have this sort of narrative in our country that our incarceration rate reflects a punitive disposition on the part of, you know, our nation's criminal justice systems, you know, a a systematic failure to provide second chances. And the reality is that could be further from the truth. First of all, uh, you know, post-conviction imprisonment is not even the most likely outcome of a criminal felony case, right? In in the state system, only 40% of felony convictions will result in a post-conviction prison sentence the majority of people are either getting time served in pretrial detention or they're getting sentences of probation or they're having their cases you know uh, their sentences deferred so that's that's number one number two is if you look at the average prisoner this is someone who has somewhere between 10 and 12 prior arrests and about five prior convictions these are not oh. people who've been denied second chances so then the question becomes well Is it, in fact, better to release these people out into the community rather than incarcerate them? I think the answer to that question is obviously no. And the reason I think that is because I've looked at our recidivism data and our recidivism data show consistently that somewhere in the range of 80 percent of state prisoners will reoffend at least once when they're released. Over a 10-year period, released state prisoners will generate five rearrests and that's a lot considering the fact that a good chunk of them will actually find themselves back in prison before that 10 year period is up which means that they won't be on the street to generate mm-hmm. more rearrests so you know and, and again this is a problem that is not going to be evenly distributed so if we're going to talk about you know the 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 overrepresentation of certain you know uh, racial groups in our incarcerated population we also have to talk about the disparities with respect to the distribution of the risks associated with decarceration. If crime goes up, we know that it's not going to go up in rich white communities. That's just not the reality. And so I, I just always ask people who harp on the the racial disparities in incarceration why they aren't equally concerned with the racial disparities in victimization. Again, you know, I repeat myself, but the, the, the black male homicide victimization rate in this country is 10x that of the white male homicide victimization rate. That is a massive, consistent, and incredibly stark disparity that ought to inform our decisions with respect to whether we should pursue large-scale decarceration, which we simply cannot safely pursue. I mean, the you know, the, the other thing too is like, if you just look at the top line disparities, yeah, it looks bad because, you know, uh, uh, black and brown men are X percent of the population, but X plus some other number percent of the prison population. But, and and the implication is that, you know, well, this is just a function of racial animus within the system. But that's just not true. When you actually look at, you know, uh, at, the, at the data and control for race neutral factors that would explain incarceration, the disparity shrinks to to almost nothing right so when you control for the type of crime committed the severity of the crime committed the age and criminal histories of the offenders um the jurisdiction in which the crime was committed the disparity in sentencing basically comes down to a matter of weeks maybe a couple months which would be a really weird way uh for judges to manifest their racial animus toward a particular group um and, and so you know it, it really is one of the more frustrating points that i find myself sort of repeatedly responding to because you know, it just continues to commit the same two errors, which is one, you're not actually controlling for all the relevant factors that might explain the top line disparity that you're harping on. And two, you're assuming that whatever disparity remains after you control for those factors, which we know is is very, very small, you're attributing that to racial animus without any real basis for that, right? Just because we haven't identified some obvious factor that explains a disparity doesn't mean that racism is the only other
0: explanation. Right. Uh, Of course, that's, exactly the opposite of what Ibram X. Kendi believes. Any disparity means racism. And the only answer is racism against the dominant group. Um, The can we just spend one minute on um, why? Did you did you take a look at why? Why? Why do black men disproportionately commit the violent crime right like, like that seems like a relevant question i'm sure Kendi would tell me because of white supremacy you know we've set up the system in a way that, that gives them no chance in life and therefore they resort to a life of crime but what is the actual answer
1: yeah i mean I, you know I, i'm not sure i have the actual answer i suspect that culture is a big explanation um it's a big part of the explanation if you you know Look at the, the the arguments of people like Kendi and other you know sort of decarceration activists. What they'll say is that well you know the the broader economic system is sort of rigged uh, against uh, you know black men in particular, but that that doesn't seem quite right to me. First off, the majority of blacks in our society don't commit crimes; they're completely law abiding, right? So that 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 seems a, an overly broad explanation for a problem that is very hyper concentrated within a subset of that population, but it also is in tension with the sort of lack of, of, of nexus between the sort of socioeconomic indicators that are being alluded to and the kinds of violence that we're seeing, right? If you look at things like poverty rate, unemployment rate, um, they don't actually provide clear explanations for violent crime. You know, the poverty rate uh, has in New York City, for example, has remained essentially steady since the mid-1980s and yet we've seen a massive decline in homicides uh, over that period um if you look at you know the great recession we saw the the unemployment rate in this nation nearly double um and yet homicides declined 15 percent during that period homicides didn't rise in new york city didn't rise in chicago um and so you know it, that 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 just doesn't make a ton of sense uh, you know there's also what what criminologist barry latzer likes to call crime adversity mismatch which is that you can actually sort of identify different culturally identifiable groups and, you know, sort of uh, compare them with respect to socioeconomic status. And what you'll see are sort of consistencies in terms of socioeconomic status, but inconsistencies in terms of involvement in violent crime. I mean, so in, in New York, for example, Black New Yorkers experience poverty at a lower rate than Asian New Yorkers and Hispanic New Yorkers, yet Are represented in among violent uh, crime suspects at much higher rates than both of those groups so you know the, the, the sort of basic claim that the sort of economic system is really at the root of these differences i don't think holds much water um and and that kind of leaves us with a potential uh, uh argument in favor of a cultural explanation which which does make some sense i mean i think there's some really good work that's been done on this in the past and i'm thinking now of like elijah anderson's uh 1992 book i want to say um code of the street where he embedded himself in north philadelphia and and sort of identified the prevailing social mores um and what he found you know through this kind of anthropological um study was that There was a sort of culture that elevated violence as a legitimate means of respect acquisition and as a legitimate means of dispute resolution. And it's that culture um, that explains the disparate rates uh, of violent crime in those areas as compared to other areas. And, you know, I, I do think that it's time you know, for us to start grappling with the possibility that there's something to that. I know the culture word, you know, makes lots of people really uncomfortable. Um, but, but, you know, the other explanations just don't seem, um, mm-hmm. to, to, to sort of fit the problem very well.
0: Mm. I did some, um, stories on inner city Chicago, uh, a couple of years ago and, and went right into the heart of, you know, the problem. And it was so, it was such a, there was such despair in the community. I talked to a lot of moms whose sons were in prison, whose husbands were in prison, um, who live in a in a community where their kid could, could be shot at any moment for absolutely nothing. And there will be absolutely no criminal penalties nine times out of 10 for the shooter. And it's to the point where, like, you could get shot just for leaving the neighborhood. Like if you leave the the one neighborhood that's controlled by certain gangs or certain people, and cross over, say, for example, the predominantly black neighborhood into the predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, that can be a a lethal, a fatal offense. And um, you can you can be somebody who's trying to better his life. You can be going to a community center, trying to you know take extra classes, and still get shot in a drive-by on your walk out. Like there's no respect for you know what? This kid's trying to get out. This kid's trying to make better of himself and help his mom and do that. Like, no. So I can see how you, and and of course, most of these homes are fatherless and so on, but it's like, I can see how you'd be living by a different code that would lead you to say, I don't follow the normal rules and no one's really going to make me and just F this system that doesn't give a shit about me or anybody I love.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think the the, the the broken homes point is also really important because you know, one of the things that the, the research on family structure tells us is that two parents are generally better than one, assuming that both parents are pro-social their dispositions. And when you have an absent parent or you have the presence of an antisocial parent, the socialization process um for for young children becomes much more likely to break down. And when the socialization process breaks down. That's much more likely to result in conduct disorders, which can then metastasize into full-blown personality disorders. And one of the things that people don't really talk much about is the fact that in the general male population in this country, something like antisocial personality disorder has a prevalence rate of between 2 and 4%, but in prison settings, it has a prevalence rate of between 40 and 70% which is massive. That's a much higher rate even than poverty, right? So um, antisocial personality disorder is more common among prisoners than poverty. Uh, So is uh, substance use disorder, which is another thing that we know is very likely to come from small children who develop diagnosable conduct disorders, and we know that conduct disorders are much more likely to develop if the socialization process breaks down, which is much more likely to break down if you don't have two pro-social parents in the house, sort of dedicated to that process. I mean, mm. you know, people kind of think that you know children are born into the world generally good, and that you learn how to be bad. But I think anyone with toddlers knows that that's not true. Um, you know our, our sort of natural disposition as uh you know uncivilized humans is to to use violence, and our parents and our teachers socialize us out of that and when that process breaks down, it's problematic
0: mm. wow, all right, up next we're going to get into some specifics. um There have been some horrific crime videos making the rounds in the news, and I have to say for good reason because it does seem to speak to a general deterioration in our humanity, so why? Why and what is the answer? Raphael's got thoughts. Uh, that's next. And remember, folks, you can find the Megan Kelly show live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east and the full video show and clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel, youtubecom slash Megan Kelly. The YouTube channel's on fire right now. Don't miss all the fun happening over there. If you prefer an audio podcast, follow download on Apple, Spotify, Pandora Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast for free. And there you will find our full archives, including the very first time Raphael was on in episode three sixty three. Check it out. Raphael, let's talk about what we're seeing. I mean, of course, I live in the New York area and it's horrendous what's happening here. I lived in New York in the late nineteen nineties. I lived downtown. I rode the six train that you mentioned about. This is during the Giuliani era when things started to get better, you know, and then we had Bloomberg, thanks to Giuliani and Bloomberg, we had a nice long time here in New York where you could live in a neighborhood without having to worry about crime that much. Boy, how things have changed under our horrific last mayor, uh, the soft on crime DA that we now have now and so on. But there was this one video that really underscored just how we've lost our moral compass. We've we've lost our connection, our humanity. And it happened just the other day. Um, A dead man, a man was run over by a truck uh, in Midtown Manhattan. I think it was 8th Avenue and 44th street which is right right in midtown and the guy was in his young 50s <clears throat> he um was there underneath the the wheel of the truck dead it's a tragedy and some guy ran over and pickpocketed him yeah. to the point where they couldn't even identify the guy without checking dental records later cuz they, they he took his ID and the worst part of it maybe i don't know it's hard to pick is he was cheered on. These New Yorkers standing there right in the middle of Midtown New York cheered him. I'm going to play it. You can see it on YouTube later and our listening audience will hear the exuberant cheers as this man picked the pocket of a dead man in Midtown.
3: Go no, gangsta! Go ahead! gangsta!
4: Go ahead! she's like, yo, let me take one out of don't need that.
0: No! they loved it the man's still underneath the enormous wheel of the truck dead in front i i, I don't i don't even know what to say I, we've lost our humanity
1: yeah yeah there really aren't any words that fully capture just how disgusting that is i mean you know it's and the, the the laughter the the sense of enjoyment is you know that that's the kind of thing that i think indicates you know a sort of cultural argument as to what undergirds this right because you know if if you can make the argument that this was just a function of poverty this is just you know someone trying to make ends meet because they're desperate you, that that doesn't come with the laughter that doesn't come with the go ahead gangster. i mean you know what is that it, it's it, i i think you're exactly right i think in a lot of ways um too many people are becoming far too desensitized to tragedy and gore and violence and and that's only going to breed more
0: of it um, yeah. And they see it everywhere. Baltimore. They see it in, in the yeah. New York City subway. The former New York governor, Democrat uh, Patterson, came out uh, this week, I think it was, and said, I have never felt more unsafe in my life in New York City ever. This is a lifetime record for him. I think a lot of people are feeling that um, you cannot take the subway anymore. I would not take the subway. I took the subway. You mentioned the sixth train again. I took it every day, every day. When I was a young lawyer practicing in Manhattan in 1997 through 1999, uh, every day I took it. You, I would not take the subway anymore. The hell no. Uh, there's, I saw you had a tweet the other day about the murder rate down in the subway and how we're seeing it go up and up and up this year. I think it's, they've had seven this year. Seven people get get killed that doesn't count all the people have just been stabbed in the face and stabbed in the shoulder and these are young dads young moms doing nothing nothing wrong um and people say well it's only seven (laughs) okay well it It tends to be one, one per year. Seven's a huge increase. It's the point you were making. Um, And the videos are every day. We see another one of people down in the subway harassing people. Here's just one bizarre one just to show the viewers at home. Some, I think it was women, dressed as green goblins took to the subway and committed a crime. Um, This is just a video. It was on October 2nd. I don't even know what they're doing. I don't even know. It's like organized crime who think they think it's funny. They think it's going to be like a laugh riot to deck themselves out in bizarre neon green bodysuits, brutally attacking and mobbing two 19 year olds where Times Square Times Square subway station. 2 a.m. after one of the victims committed the sin of apparently bumping into them happens over and over nine times out of 10. Rafael, though, not always. It's some homeless person shoving somebody onto the tracks.
1: Yeah, no, this is a real problem. I mean, and people try to downplay it and say, oh, well, it's only seven. Yeah, well, it's only seven at, compared to one or zero, right, in, in, in prior years before 2020. And that doesn't even begin to account for the fact that we have significantly lower ridership so that on our best day, we're at about 70% of what our pre-pandemic ridership was. So the rate's even higher when you account for that change. That's but it, basically point. in the last three years, we have seen a decade's worth of subway murders compressed into three years, less than three years, really, because twenty twenty two isn't over yet um that's a massive change, and it's a change that really matters for the future health of the city right If people don't take public transportation out of fear, which is a completely reasonable thing to do um you know our family got a car recently when my wife uh took a job in the Bronx because I just didn't want her taking the subway you know, at six o'clock in the morning by herself uh, and at six o'clock at night by herself. Um, and, you know, I, I suspect lots of people who can afford to and who are fortunate enough to to be in that position are making similar decisions, if not deciding to leave the city altogether on that basis. And that's that's really, really not good for the future of New York, which depends on a tax base of people that really valued um, having a 24-7 public transportation system that was safe. I mean, I remember being, you know, young uh, and in college and, you know, in my young professional life, you know, taking the subway home from a bar at 2.30 in the morning, not thinking twice about, you know, closing my eyes and taking a nap. Um, now, when I take the subway, I don't even, you know, turn my headphones on. I'm, you know, I, I, I do feel tense and um uh sometimes afraid i mean for the first time in my life actually in 2020 i changed cars out of fear of someone who was who was in the car i'd never done that i had been riding the subway by mm-hmm. myself since i'm nine years old um and and i had never done that until oh God, I was i've done that mid-30s. a million times
0: i've done that a million yeah. times but that's especially because i was on the subway a lot of in my young 20s and i'm telling you, I you mean, like young women in their 20s are the ones who get attacked i mean that's so right. it's like you know when you're a young woman in your 20s you're at like peak possible victimization i've moved subway trains more times than i can count but now everybody's everybody's in that same boat
1: that's right and and, you know what's interesting about that is that you know there is a mental health problem aspect to this right i I do think that you know we see an overrepresentation of people suffering from mental illness among subway attackers but what's interesting to me about that is that they're not quite so mentally ill as to attack a you know fit muscular 25 year old guy in the prime of his life they tend to pick on weaker targets who aren't paying attention who are unsuspecting um and and you know it, it's just one of the, the reasons that more has to be done to get the subways under control because again if people leave that system abruptly and they already have right again on our best day we're at about 70 percent of pre-pandemic ridership um, that system, which is already financially taxed, is going to suffer and be degraded further. And, and that, I think, spells real trouble for the future health of New York as so a city.
0: How has policy led to this? You know, how, how I'm, I'm very curious, you know, from the homelessness that we see everywhere, the why are people naked everywhere now? I mean, like a, a video a day comes out of somebody naked committing a crime, miss behaving with police down in the subway all the time, all the time, not to mention human excrement everywhere. It's disgusting. Um, So why? What policies, let's just take New York because we're on the subject of it, are leading to this?
1: I think the deinstitutionalization that took place uh, throughout the 70s and early 80s has a lot to do with it. And We have sort of built our mental health system in a way that has moved uh, further and further away from models that prioritize real supervision, so that people can actually be forced into compliance with you know taking medication so that they can be healthy this idea that people who are suffering from acute mental illness can just be trusted to go out into the world and take care of themselves is incredibly misguided and i think is you know, that that the, the misguided nature of that idea is being illustrated for everyone to see i mean when i see someone you know who is you know naked uh, you know on the floor of the subway Talking to himself, I don't see compassion. Right? There's nothing compassionate about that. You know, again, there were lots of problems with our, our our mental health institutions, which is one of the reasons why there was such a backlash against them. But as is the case with our broader criminal justice policy, you know, the the response to a perceived problem. Uh, cannot be throwing the baby out with the bathwater because oftentimes the unintended consequences of that kind of policy uh, are worse. And I, I think we're seeing exactly that. I mean, these are unstable individuals who need to be protected from themselves and who other people need to be protected from as well. We're not doing them any favors by allowing them to roam the subways or to roam the streets, to live unhealthily, to not take medications, to suffer um you know from from the psychosis that they're suffering from and that they're often exacerbating by you know taking drugs as well which is another big part of this and so you know, the and, idea and, and by the is way our a-
0: mayor in new york basically our, our chief of uh, sorry our da basically said i'm not going to go after anybody for jumping the fair so it's like welcome could go on in there homeless people and people who are mentally unwell uh, you're not going to get prosecuted for jumping the turnstile You don't have to pay your fair way in. This would be a great place for you to hang out. No one's going to bother you is essentially what he said. And guess what? They did it. And they started bothering others in record numbers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think part of it too had to do with the pandemic, insofar as the subways were essentially emptied, and you know, there were no real sort of capable guardians in the system keeping order. And you know, I think as we see in lots of aspects of life, it's it's very easy to tear something down and not so easy to build something up. You know, I just think about my own physical experience during the pandemic. I was really in shape going into it, and within two <laughs> months, I was in the worst shape ever. Right, it torn down. Eat a eat a few donuts and uh, uh, you know, have a couple of cocktails at night and. And, and there goes your uh, your beach pod. well I, I think the same can be said for safety in the city right it takes a lot of hard work and vigilance to build up to the point that new york got to and what we're seeing is a much more rapid deterioration than i think anyone really expected as a result of um you know these kinds of of, of policy approaches i mean the order maintenance has to be a central part of the mission of the city's criminal justice apparatus. The idea that we can just ignore order maintenance and focus on serious crime is just so wrong in so many ways. And one of the ways is that it ignores the significant overlap between people who commit sort of public order offenses and more serious crime just the other explain
0: Explain order maintenance. Yeah, you know, like things like uh, enforcing
1: laws against littering, enforcing laws against fare evasion, enforcing laws against public urination and public defecation and open air drug use. You know, all of these things do uh, they have a lot of effects. One of them is that it sends a signal to people that they. Process in the following way. It's like when I go into the subway and I see someone injecting heroin into their arm on my subway platform, as I saw just very recently, what that tells you is that that person feels completely comfortable engaging in that antisocial behavior in that space. And if they feel comfortable, then it's because no one else is in charge of this space. And if no one is in charge, then anything goes. And if anything goes, then anything can happen to me, which means that I'm vulnerable. That's how people process that psychologically. This is the, the great innovation of the broken windows theory. to recognized yeah. this psychological impact of exposure to consistent public disorder. When that happens, people do exactly what they're doing now, which is avoid those public spaces that they see as unsafe in greater numbers, which in turn makes them even more vulnerable to more serious kinds of crime. And then on top of that, I mean, there just really isn't such thing as a an exclusively violent criminal, right? This idea that we can just sort of take resources from order maintenance and 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 put them towards violent crime investigations is is wrong in the following way, which is that there's no one who says like I'm just a violent criminal, right? I don't jump the t- the turnstile, I don't litter, I don't drive past the speed <laughs> limit, right? All That's I not my thing. Play. Right. You know, that's, that just doesn't exist, right? People who commit serious violent crime are often very antisocial in their dispositions. And that antisocial disposition will manifest itself in a multitude of ways, including in the commission of you know, quality of life offenses, which is one of the reasons why when Commissioner Bratton took over the transit police in 1990, they had such success in lowering the crime rate underground with respect to their fair evasion program, because one in seven fair vaders had an open warrant and one in something like 20 or 21 were found to be carrying an illegal weapon so wow. you know acknowledging that overlap um i think is kind of step one towards getting back to a system that recognizes the importance of order maintenance and so these are not just victimless crimes right you may not be able to identify an individual victim but the victim is the neighborhood the victim is the public space itself um and and that needs to get reintegrated into our our you know broader crime fighting strategy.
0: You know this is reminding me a bit of um as you know we left New York because of the lunacy in the public in the in the private schools it's also happening in the public schools but um moved to Connecticut and our kids are in private school out here and our sons are at an all boys school and I I love the head of school he's he's great on all these issues. And he at our annual dinner the other week was talking about how um he he was endorsing the broken windows policy of Giuliani and saying, you know, that kind of approach to life works not only when it comes to crime, but even when it comes to the raising of young men, young boys and men. And he was saying how they take a similar approach in that. Um, he, he was encouraging, encouraging us to have our children make their beds every day um, to have chores that they really have to do, you know, real responsibilities that they have to live up to. He was saying that's one of the reasons why they have them say the pledge in the lower school every morning. Um, and it reminded me of my older son's complaint that they go outside and they play at recess and, you know, they have to wear their little uniforms. You know, they have a little suit and tie or coat and tie and they play and they run around. And then before they go in for their lunch, they have to tuck in their shirts. They have to fix their ties. They have to make sure their jackets are on. They have to make sure they're not covered in dirt. And my son found it annoying because he just wants to eat. You know, he's hungry and they don't have a lot of time to eat. And the head of school is explaining separately, very, you know, coincidentally, the same week my son had complained about this to me that they make them do that, too, for for a very good reason. They're trying to instill order in these kids, not by saying, like, walk a straight line, shoulders back, no talking, just respect, respect for one's self, for one's environment, for one's elders and a system, you know, that acknowledges the importance of that. Right. That will produce a responsible citizen who takes himself seriously and those around him, you know, respect. he treats them respectfully so anyway, it's all connected. it's all connected, and so when you let them jump the turnstile, or urinate on the subway bench, or, you know, the one guy pushed somebody off the subway um, onto the tracks in the morning, just this past two weeks in New York, and the, thank God the guy lived, but later that afternoon did the same thing. He did it to somebody else. It's like one little step over the line leads to a bigger step, leads to a bigger step, and then you're making only big steps. So, the small stuff matters
1: it does it does, and it reflects on society more broadly right If you enforce order, you are communicating what the expectations are, and believe it or not, that does affect how people behave in those public spaces and if you fail to enforce those rules, those rules essentially go away because um you know enforcement matters it, it matters that we communicate you know what it is that we expect of our fellow citizens and um I think we've lost sight of that as a city. I think lots of cities have lost sight of that, but you know New York is really kind of the city on a hill and you know, as was the case in the 90s when we were moving in the right direction, as New York goes, so goes the rest of the country in a lot of ways. And and so, you know, I think this is a real important moment for New York to step up and set an example again. And, um, you know, I, I hope we can do that. I, I think Mayor Adams has his head in the right place. I think the NYPD has its heart in the right place. What I fear is that the broader system, you know, our, our DAs, are. Our, you know, lawmakers in the city council who are incredibly radical, um, our lawmakers in Albany are just not on the same page. Um, And until that happens, I think we're going to continue to see things get worse.
0: We um, have a budded soundbite from Gianna Caldwell of Fox News, whose younger brother who's just 18 was killed in Chicago, and he's been speaking out about it. And he's also doing reporting on it. By the way, Chicago, we haven't touched on it this time. We talked about it the last time you were here. Chicago is now about to end cash bail entirely. New York and New Jersey passed legislation that largely curtails the use of cash bail. So you basically just write out back out on the streets after you get accused of a crime. And Illinois is going to end it all together. Though people accused of some of the worst crimes, forcible felonies, stalking and domestic abuse will be exempt um, from pretrial release. So they think that that's a reasonable compromise, like the worst felons won't won't be getting pretrial release, but everybody else will get turned out on the street immediately. Anyway, I mention it just because Giano has been doing good reporting. His brother got killed in Chicago and now Giano took a microphone to some of these folks here in New York, like Chuck Schumer, Jerry Nadler. Uh, he went they were down in Washington, but some of the lawmakers are from New York and and tried to get some accountability from them on what they've done and the policies they pushed. And it's pretty extraordinary how this went. It was in order of appearance that you hear Jerry Nadler, Chuck Schumer, Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Pressley, the last two in particular, huge defund the policers. Um, take a listen to how that went.
4: Oh, yeah, just want to talk with about Nather. The our with crime
0: the Nather, I can't do it now. I can't talk now. I'm going to be pretty busy. Okay.
4: Tomorrow? Is that where? Who should we reach out to in your office, Congressman? You just want to talk about the crime crisis in America the elevator doors any reaction closed. to the crime crisis in America. Crime is up, sir. There's a crisis. You have any reaction? You're a leader. I, I would think you would have a reaction to what's going on in the country. You support the, the police movement. It led to a rise in crime. Do you have any reaction? Any reaction? Oh, no reaction. It impacts your, your citizens. Any reaction to the rise in violent crime across the country, Diana which Chrisley. is impacting students?
2: Well, I mean, our work on student debt cancellation is a direct response to what I would consider to be policy bi- violence.
4: You mentioned policy violence. I just want to follow up on that. She got your question. She got. My, yeah, I know the policy violence. I just wanted to know, you got to question do you, you the, feel that, that she, the police should still be defunded? Shoot your note. Here she true a note? Up. Yeah. We'll set it.
0: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But policy. Right. She, her, her response, Ayanna Press has been one of the worst on defund the police. Her, her response is, well, student debt. That's what's leading to all these this uptick in crime. I don't even know. Like this is going to come back to haunt these Dems in these midterm elections.
1: It it should, um, you know, because that'll send a signal that that people aren't going to tolerate arguments as silly as that. I mean, it really is just beyond the pale. I mean, what do you even say to that? There's, the, you know, it, it's it's as if she just you know doesn't care um about being you know called out and i suspect she doesn't in part because she just sees herself as you know a team member and she's going to be loyal to her team no matter what the facts say um but but yeah this is this is the problem this is you know kind of takes us full circle to the beginning of our conversation this is what you know the american people are being told now you know to 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 sort of close their eyes to they're not the, to not believe they're lying I As mean, you know the, the democratic party has a problem with individuals like this who just are not willing to engage uh on this issue and are not at least not in a serious way you know the reality is is that we have experimented with the lives of people who live in already distressed communities it's like walking into a casino and gambling with the 401k of a complete stranger right Mm. we're 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 going down a, a policy road that makes it less likely that crimes will be solved that makes it less likely that uh Crimes will result in uh, incarcerations. That makes it, you know, much harder for for police to be proactive. That you know, and and where's that all happening in the in the midst of a nearly unprecedented crisis? I mean, I say unprecedented not because crime has never been higher, but because in 2020 we saw the single largest year-over-year uh, increase in homicides that our country has ever seen in recorded history. That that should matter. Um, And, you know, it it just doesn't seem to be getting the attention that it deserves. And I I suspect that's because our broader criminal justice and policing debates have moved concerns, um, you know, for people who come into contact with the criminal justice system to the front burner of those debates and move concerns for the potential victims of those individuals to the back burner. And um, I, I think that needs to change. We need to rebalance that debate. I mean, you know, these are both important considerations. But. Um, I suspect that, that that we have lost sight of, of the true and first duty of government, which is to provide for the public safety.
0: We have definitely seen this raised in uh, debates for the Senate seats in Ohio, um, in Wisconsin. It's become a campaign issue in terms of the ads in places like Pennsylvania, uh, certainly in New York now in the gubernatorial race. We're seeing it. So on and on, these Republicans are starting to get on message and and remind people of how we got to this place. It wasn't accidental. It didn't have to happen and it can be undone. Raphael Manguel, thank you so much for all the great, great work you've done on this. Criminal Injustice is the book. Check it out. Thank you. Coming up, uh, a new story of a trans woman dominating over biological women in a women's sport. Uh, and the people who run the sport couldn't care less. One of the biological women is here in a moment to speak out. This is another Leah Thomas situation. So this woman is brave to come on and tell us what's happening. Um, that's up next in a Megan Kelly show exclusive. Don't go away. The world of sports continues to navigate through the inclusion of trans players in gender specific leagues and always to the disadvantage of biological women. Professional disc golf is experiencing its own Leah Thomas moment right now with trans women winning top awards and monetary prizes at the expense of the biological women. Some female disc golfers are now speaking out, including our next guest, Jennifer Castro. She's here to share why she is concerned about the position the Professional Disc Golf Association is taking on trans players. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So just explain for our audience what disc golf is, because not everybody knows that sport.
3: Disc golf is basically playing golf, but instead of um, a hole in the ground, there's a basket and we're throwing Frisbees, you know. We say okay. discs now, but older generations still say frisbee.
0: Okay, okay, got it. And this is actually—I mean—it's got a, a very devoted following, and there are people who have been working on this for decades of their lives. And as you move up in the rankings and the competitions become more professional, you can make some good money as a as a winner or competitor in these uh, competitions.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. And we're sponsors alone are paying lots of money to have, uh, players represent them. So it's, it's,
0: there's a lot of money to be made in the sport. And, and like most sports, there's a men's league and a women's league. Yes. Okay. So Uh, you Well,
3: actually, let me correct you. It's not men's it's a mixed league. So it's primarily men that play in that division, but it's not considered men's. It's now mixed.
0: Mm. Oh, so a trans man can play against the biological men. Correct. Yeah. Which, of course, I mean, it never works the other way. You know, it's like, that's fine. They can say right. that's fine, but they'll never <laughs> win. So it, is it a situation where a man's physical advantages over a woman could be helpful to it? Like a trans woman is a biological man. So like in the Leah Thomas situation, we could see that this this man, biological man had physical advantages over the other swimmers. Is this the same situation?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. We are absolutely seeing that across the board. Um, recently, uh, Natalie Ryan just won the distance competition and threw 458 feet. The average woman is about 250. So that makes a, a big advantage for these transgender players.
0: This is Natalie Ryan that we're showing on the screen right now. So you're saying that the, that the trans women like Natalie can throw the frisbee much farther than the biological women can. Okay. And that's obviously an, an advantage because you want to make the frisbee in the hole in as few throws as possible. Precise. Okay. So how, how you're an amateur player, right? You're not a, you're not a professional player. Correct. And what was the first you noticed trans women are coming into this sport and they're starting to crush the biological women?
3: Um honestly when I started playing about 3 years ago um locally to where I was at at the time there was a transgender player uh but however she was playing in the mixed division so I have a lot of respect for her because she knows what her talent level is and that she can handle her own and so she plays plays in the mixed division um but then um, we started seeing a bunch of transgenders in the female uh divisions and I'm watching it on TV and I'm just seeing all of these biological women just being crushed and having, you know, their financial security basically at risk the entire time.
0: Yeah, their financial security. Exactly. Because they're not going to win. <laughs> That's your point. Right. Like, yeah. in most of these competitions, they're going to lose to the trans women. All right. So then there was an event at um, you tell me how, how, you, how you pronounce this. I'd see it as DGLO, um, <laughs> which is a big elite event. When was that? And what happened?
3: Uh, That was back in July, Um, and Natalie Ryan took first place in that. It was the first time uh, she had won a major event um, and took such a prize
0: purse from the biological females. So How much did did Natalie win?
3: uh, I don't have the exact number offhand.
0: I believe it was six. Actually, it, it was six grand. <laughs> 6000 bucks. That's how much. 6000, yes. And how often do these competitions come along?
3: Oh, they're all the time. They're they these pros are touring all the time. Um locally I have one about every
0: weekend, sometimes two. Oh. So you could really support yourself doing this you if you're good at it. Yes.
3: If you're pro, yes.
0: <laughs> and how long has Natalie Ryan, this trans woman, been playing disc golf, do you know? 3 years. Three years as a woman or three, just three years total, three
3: years total. She's been playing about as long as I have.
0: And so you, she goes up against biological women who've been playing the sport for 10 plus years. And how's that, how's that going?
3: Um, Honestly, it's kind of defeating because a lot of the females work day in and day night, day in and day out, you know, to make sure that their game is to a level where they can, you know, get the furthest distance and be the best in their fields cuz females if, if you're not one of the best you're not going to get a sponsorship you know worth worth it financially so mm-hmm. they're doing the best they can and they can't keep up with these men and so the spotlight is in essence being taken away from them and instead of them being celebrated like they should be they're basically being forgotten or the opposite is which is happening now it's the transgender is getting all of the limelight and it's kind of almost negative.
0: Negative to be a biological woman? Like you're not the fun, sexy, exciting new thing.
3: Exactly. We're not even, we're like a blip now because the transgender in disc golf happens to be the big story.
0: Wow. And it's not just Natalie Ryan. It looks like um, there's a couple of trans players, uh, one of whom I know you raised this issue. Chloe Alice, we have on camera admitting that Chloe sometimes forget to take forgets to take Chloe's, quote, pretty pills, which is what Chloe needs to take to transition from male to female. Chloe's talking about, I guess, estrogen uh, and, you know, whatever Chloe has to take to appear and and seem, I guess, I don't know how to say it, more female than Chloe actually is because Chloe's a biological man. Here's that soundbite. It's number 12.
4: They give me medicine. I'm supposed to take it twice a day, every day. They're called my pretty pills. I forget to take these a lot. You know, just the medicine that's solely responsible for creating a lot of what I am today. Just forget. Whatever. It's whatever. Three days will go by and I'll, like, remember, oh, I haven't taken my pills. If I stop taking these for an extended period of time, I will start reverting back, like, transitioning
0: back to how my natural testosterone works. Hmm. And okay, so there may be a lot of people out there saying, well, if the testosterone spiked up, disc golf would tell this person, Chloe, you may no longer compete because your testosterone rose to a level that was not appropriate for the women's division. But is that true?
3: Not at all. We recently found out um, that they don't do any testing whatsoever.
0: So you found this out because you decided as, as an amateur player, which I have to tip my hat to you because it's pretty ballsy, <laughs> <laughs> um, to do a little experiment on whether they were actually doing any enforcement to make sure testosterone levels were at a certain place or that these are not just, you know, completely biological men claiming that they're women and you know, overnight playing in the women's league. And tell us yes. about how that went.
3: Uh, Back in August, uh, August 30th, I decided to set up an email account because I kind of wanted to know how it was working from the ground up to get some kind of answers. Um, So I set up this email and I messaged the board and asked them, I did an inquiry asking them, as a transgender woman, do I need to document or show any documentation, prove that I had the surgery, etc. And I was told that a medical committee member would get back in touch with me and the person who reached back out to me happened to be elaine king who's big in the disc golf world in very respectable respectable woman um, in the fpo field so she was the one that messaged me back basically letting me know that one they don't test They don't look for, I don't need to have the surgery. All I had to do was basically read the criteria. And if I felt that I met the criteria, then I could definitely join as a female. Hmm. And what about
0: testosterone levels? Would they ever be checked? No.
3: The only time anything ever gets checked is when they started off disc golf as a man and decided that they wanted to transition. In that case, they would have to show 12 months straight of being under 10 um, nanomoles per liter um, of testosterone to make it acceptable and fair, or they have to have the um, surgery, the reassignment surgery. And Chloe is one that has neither. So in essence, she is a man playing against
0: women. Chloe came on the scene as a trans player. like Chloe wasn't Clyde, Chloe, for 10 actually, years Chloe actually league.
3: started as a, Chloe did start as a man and she took two years off. But the way um, we've looked at it, it's nothing. If they're not being asked for anything, she didn't supply anything. We highly doubt the, the PDGA is definitely not letting us know whether anybody has submitted anything and we can't do anything. We can't challenge it. We can't, you know, show anything. The only time we can challenge is challenge it is if we have actual evidence. And the only evidence that'll work is if a doctor breaks HIPAA and gives us the documentation we need. And they're not going to do that.
0: So you can't just say we want Chloe tested because Chloe looks exactly like a man and is the size of a man and was playing as a man very recently. So we want the testosterone tested because to keep it fair, you can't do that. You need somebody to actually leak to you a test or some sort of documentation that you could bring to them.
3: Yeah, we need to have medical documentation to prove it or else the <laughs> medical committee will just throw out the challenge is what I was told.
0: So they're they're basically encouraging you to commit a crime to investigate this issue. From what I was told
3: is the PDHA is not big enough yet to be able to do the medical testing. So they've got it written in their bylaws that this is what they have to do in order to, you know, play as a female. but. They've openly admitted they don't have the money to make sure that, you know, the testing is being carried out. So they just expect nobody to challenge it.
0: And, and I, I mean, I don't know if this would be sufficient to you, but could they go back to Chloe and say, you need to prove it? You need to submit your testing to us on your own dime.
3: I would hope so. Plenty of people put, have put in challenges, but we're getting a copy and paste response on it. So I highly doubt that they're doing anything.
0: What's the copy and paste response?
3: It's basically saying that the subcommittee and the medical committee um, are meeting soon, which happened to be last night, to take a vote on it and submit their results to the board of directors on what they think should be done as far as standards playing with
0: with females. So do you think they're reevaluating it? Do you think there's a chance that this Chloe and uh Natalie Ryan and I know there's a couple of others might get booted out of the women's league?
3: Uh I would certainly hope so, but we're not holding our breath. Every everything that's been thrown out there or proven has been combated with uh very uh, a very lack response. They're they're not helping out in any way, shape, or form. And the Currently, the BOD sits where there's four who are biased leaning towards this happening and two who aren't. So we're kind of the only way we can make a change is if it gets out there. And unfortunately, sponsors aren't letting the pros speak. And the pros are the ones that need to be able to speak. So the PDGA sees that there is an issue.
0: A I want to talk about the pros.
3: Thinking,
0: I want to talk about them. In one second, uh, yeah, but,
3: I'm just an but, amateur. But let me, yeah,
0: so you've got more freedom. But what that four to make up. On the board that's going to decide this, um, do we know anything about those folks and what their leanings are? You say you think it's you know four who want the trans people to uh, compete against the women and two who might not. Like, I mean, because I only ask because we've seen this happen time and time again, where the entire board making the decision is men or trans women, <laughs> and there is no biological woman on the board representing them who are the the ones who are going to suffer if it goes the wrong way.
3: Yeah, we have uh, two men that are definitely for it. Uh, we have a transgender who's obviously for it. And then we have a doctor who specializes in uh, that field. So she is also
0: very for it. Of course. Uh, I, like, so I'm telling no, you, you, there's can take, no hope for us. You can take it to the bank. So I know you, I read the Quillette piece, which they, which is how I found you. And I thought it was really interesting. And they were saying that when you got your receipt, your response, email from this elaine king who's the head of the medical community or committee um she she informed you that no proof this is when she thought you were a trans woman versus on your based on your email no proof of gender reassignment surgery is needed testing is not done to make sure testosterone level is at the proper levels nothing will be monitored uh once you are a member of the group and allowed to play no one can challenge a trans woman based on looks or ability even though i mean it's so obvious when you we show that video of natalie ryan throwing the disc i mean this is clearly a man i with all due respect i understand that this person identifies as trans but this is clearly a biological man who's made actually very little effort to appear a female in order to challenge uh we must have proof this is what you were just pointing out you you, you can't get proof without a doctor breaking HIPAA and that all you would have to do is read the criteria for playing in the women's league. And if you felt you met the criteria, that was all that was needed to register as a female in the gender protected division. I mean, this is no protection at all. This is basically a middle finger to the biological right. women competing as amateurs or pros. Exactly. So have you heard from the pros? Have any of the pros who feel less able to speak out spoken to you off the record behind the scenes?
3: I've spoken to some behind the scenes and I have yet to speak to one who is actually for it. Not one. And I I truly invite them to message me or get in contact with me because I'd love to hear a different point of view. But we have science on our side and they need to go off of science on this because we fought for years to get this protective division. And just to go back and undo it, it's basically two mixed divisions again.
0: Two mixed divisions, right? Where uh, I see, so you fought to get a female league so that you can get your own sponsorships and, and prize money and so on. Exactly.
3: So it would be so, financially feasible for women to be able to be prof- professional athletes in this field.
0: In this. So sport. what? What are what are the women saying? You know, you say you've spoken to a couple of them. Like, how are they feeling? <laughs> Uh,
3: some of them um, don't feel that their form is very great. It, like a lot of these females, um, that transgenders that are playing as female, they haven't been in the game very long. And for them to be in the game and automatically be conquering in the sport, it, it's just baffling. And we're, we're just dumbfounded by it. And we just feel like we're being robbed here and is listening. Um I have made an effort to like look everybody's individuals, um, PDGA records, like for example, Chloe Alice, who we were looking at before, before she did her transition, she was playing in men's advance amateur league. She wasn't even professional, she was an amateur, so she was playing for plastic. So for her to go and do this transition and come back and professionally play in the female league and winning and taking money from women. It's like if you hadn't gone through this transition, you would still be playing for a disc. And even when she was playing advanced, she wasn't placing to even get free discs. So it's clearly an
0: advantage here. It's just like the Leah Thomas situation where when Leah Thomas was Will Thomas, he was placing five hundredth plus in the league. That's where he was ranked. And then as soon as he said he was a woman, he was number one in winning tournaments, mm-hmm. including at the NCAA. So I understand as they reevaluate what they want their policy to be, they sent out some survey uh, to all the professional disc golf association members last week, and it's causing some outrage. Why is that?
3: The survey that was sent out, we were informed through email from the PDGA on an official letterhead that it was going to be through a university. They didn't tell us which one at the time, but it was supposed to help the board make a decision on what they should do about transgenders playing in the female divisions. And so when the email went out the very next day and we all looked at it, it took about five minutes for everybody to get on social media outlets with just rage because all about two questions had anything to do with the topic at all the rest was um should my child be well behaved or obedient should or, or is it more um uh, unbecoming for a woman to be pushy or for a man to be pushy are you left leaning uh, on a scale from 0 to 7 or are you right leaning it's like what what it had nothing to do with the topic on hand
0: so what like are they just looking for cover I don't understand. Like, why would they go through the effort? Because I think there's at least a couple transgender questions on that survey. What What's the point? Why? What do they care whether you're left leaning or right leaning? We couldn't quite
3: understand it, and um, because nothing was like given out as far as like who was doing the survey, university and stuff. I actually saw in the um, link that was sent to us. That it was WCU, So I looked it up and I called Western Carolina University and I asked them, hey, who's responsible for doing this survey? Because a lot of us disc golfers have questions on it. And he asked me to send him the link. That I did. And when he received it and looked it up on his end, he was like, oh, it's Associate Professor Justin McKinney. I'm going to mess with this thing. McKinney? McKinney? Um, anyway, he happens to be the old president of the Professional Disc Golf Association. So they were hiding this survey through the university without saying, hey, it's actually the board giving you this survey.
0: Hmm. It sounds agenda-driven. I mean, that's the bottom line. It really is. So what happens to you as an amateur player aspiring to move up, I imagine? What if they say transgender players can continue on as is, no proof of anything required, what will you do?
3: Myself and a whole lot of females that are playing right now, as well as men, have decided they're not going to re-up their membership with the Professional Disc Golf Association if they don't make this right. It's just not fair. There's no point in us paying registration fees to get into these; are not cheap. So we're putting our money into something in the hopes that we're going to get something back, and when we don't, because we have no chance because there's a man playing in our division, then there's really no point in registering whatsoever. So a lot how, of people are these... just like, I'm just not going to pay for men- another membership this year. How do the
0: trans women react when they win and they beat all the biological women?
3: Um. Well, I can tell you, Natalie, uh, Ryan definitely thinks that she is a ambassador for the sport now for transgender women and has a very almost cocky attitude about how great she is and she doesn't need to practice all that often and women are just like we're working in day in and day out to be able to beat them for her to be able it's just like it's no big deal it's like ouch (laughs)
0: you know Mm -hmm. it's just like leah thomas all over again who's completely unsympathetic to the plight of the women whose titles and trophies leah has now taken. Uh, Jennifer, yes. it is brave of you to speak out on this, but you're in the you're in the moral right. I think you know that. And we're going to continue to follow this. Uh, this is it's not right what's happening to you and to the other women in your sport. So please keep us keep us informed. OK, we'll do a follow up when you get a ruling.
3: I will do. Thank you so much.
0: And uh, we look forward to naming names uh, of the people who <laughs> who issue that ruling. Jennifer, all the best. Remember, we talked about that story on the documentary focused on reformed terrorists that the left seemed to love until they decided it was somehow racist and turned against it? That filmmaker will be here exclusively tomorrow. I just watched it. It's extraordinary. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.